Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. Leslie! Leslie, you're back, kind of, sort of. I'm back, kind of, sort of. Yes, um, still testing positive, sadly, but man, I got rocked by COVID. This was not fun and continues to not be fun. So, um, <sighs> But in the meantime, before we get into anything else, a big thanks to you, Dan, and to our special guest host last week, Chris Hahn and Kayla, for joining you and doing a really entertaining episode. I listened to it, of course, because, well, I was home and haven't left the house and at this point, more than close to 25 days. Um, and, And of course, thank you to our loyal listeners for your patience and for your kind words and of course, an uh, extra special thanks to the makers of COVID vaccines and even Paxlovid, even though that's probably why I had a rebound case, so. That's what's going, that's what's new in my world, Dan. She <laughs> huh, whiz, yes. Uh, definite thanks to Chris Hahn and Kayla, who were excellent fill-ins for you. Um, it that was, was a not, very fun episode. It, it was not a traditional episode of TV's Top Five, but I really think it was a fun episode. Um, and and this one also is not going to be a, a traditional episode because, as you can hear from Leslie's voice, while she is while she is very much on the rebound, not to be confused with the rebound. Hey, that, hey I see what you did there. It wasn't intentional. Uh, <laughs> Oh, hold on a second. Really quick. One last comment about last week's episode. I loved it, but the only thing missing from it was someone making fun of the name of Freebie. So a delayed response from my part. Freebie. There you go. There you are. I, I'm a little bit worried about making you attempt to do voices. I, I think you're having enough trouble sounding like Leslie Goldberg today. I don't know necessarily that we need to move into your wild and diverse assortment of other voices. Yeah, no, I, th- I thought about adding a, a obligatory Leslie-esque freebie, but I felt that, that, you know, we were we were covering enough terrain and we were giving you enough nods uh, that it was it was better for us not to attempt to actually be you. We were just attempting to pay homage to the way you like to handle things and the things you like to talk about. Um, yeah, so as I said, we're not we're not going to do this as a traditional podcast either. This is going to be a little bit short. We have uh, we have hopes that by next week, uh, Leslie will be fully ship shape. We'll be able to uh, line up guests for a showrunner spotlight. We'll be able to do the whole darn thing. Also, you know, there aren't that many shows this week that I've had the time to get to for Critics Corner because of press tour and uh, upcoming Sundance Film Festival coverage. So yeah, for many, many reasons, we're hoping that this one is going to be a fairly short TV's Top 5, perhaps maybe even a TV's Top 3. I think that's kind of how it it lines up. Um, and once again, there will be some inside baseball stuff because we're going to talk about the sort of wrap-up of the newly completed Television Critics Association press tour. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're just, again, we're, we're, we're doing our thing. We're reminding you that we're out here and, and trying to have podcasts. And, uh, and hopefully we will be back to business as actually usual in the next week or two. Knock on wood. Yeah, I really would like to leave the house. <laughs> I'm going a little stir crazy here. If it makes you feel any better, the outside world isn't all that interesting. I mean, it rained for about two thirds of the time you were uh shut in. So unfortunately, though, today is a, a beautiful sunny day. I I bet you you could walk out and at least take in some fresh air. Well, yeah, I mean, I've been taking the puppy out outside of, you know. OK. But, uh, yeah. And that in the rain with COVID is ooh, that's not fun. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Let's start. What do you say we start with headlines? Sounds good. Number one. Leading off with renewals, Stars has handed out an eighth and final season order for Outlander, while also officially greenlighting a prequel series. So big news for the big franchise over at Stars. I think the biggest surprise is that a spinoff or prequel or whatever they're going to call it is really took this long to do. 
Um, it feels like they kind of missed the boat, but who knows? That's also up to Sony because, well, they own Outlander. Uh, elsewhere at Stars, the Lionsgate-backed premium cable network has picked up 50 cents BMF for a third season. Lots going on over there. And uh, delayed response, but congratulations to the cast and crew of Minx for finding a new home and good on Lionsgate for picking up a show that they own that HBO paid for. So cool beans. Uh, elsewhere on the renewal front, Paramount Plus is bringing back SEAL Team for its seventh season. Yes, that show is still on. And Criminal Minds Evolution is coming back also to Paramount Plus for its second season. And I think this came out of TCA, but Chucky and Reginald the Vampire are returning for their third and second seasons, respectively, at Sci-Fi. And Gronish is coming back for a sixth season at Freeform. So some veteran shows really sticking around on, on cable here uh, and kind of bucking that like three or four seasons and out on streaming trend. Well, you know, it's a, it is a it is an unwritten law of the television landscape that David Boreanaz has to be on your TV every single year. Um, so I guess that's why SEAL Team will continue to live on. And as for Criminal Minds Evolution, I mean, people do love their criminal minds, um, evolving or not. Um, so, yeah, don't know what to say about that. I... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, all I remember is one of the spinoffs and, and how it made you like visibly angry, I think, at TCA when that uh, when that show presented. I oh, can't remember uh, the name of the spinoff. Be, beyond, it was Beyond Borders. It was the one that where the entire premise of the show is, good God, the outside world is very dangerous for Americans. Uh, and and what a tragedy it is to be an American having to deal with the with the primal forces of the outside world and their lack of civility. God, that was a reprehensible garbage show um, i also just really like hearing you like shit on a show pardon uh, my french it's uh, no that that show was particularly awful and it remains kind of the odd thing about criminal minds i it, i find it fascinating that they've made those multiple efforts to spin it off and for the most part the efforts to spin it off failed it doesn't seem as if that show is uh, so very bound to the single format of the mothership, it ought to have been a show that was able to be spun off in almost the exact same ways as NCIS and CSI and all of that. And yet, apparently, for whatever reason, it simply hasn't been. And and even then, you go, okay, sure, people simply like the actors on the mothership, but, you know, the, the show withstood the departure of Mandy Patinkin and all of that. So, it, yeah, it, and and basically, that's what Criminal Minds Evolution is. It's basically just the mothership extended into a, a slightly new version, so it doesn't even really count as a spinoff. So, yeah, that, that remains an odd thing to me, because CBS has had so much success spinning off so many different things, and somehow Criminal Minds, which might be the most popular of all of them in some matrixes, yeah, haven't been able to do it. Very Yes, and that one's still owned by Disney, which yeah. is amusing. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, pardon the Criminal Minds detour, but like where would that uh, that that spinoff that you hate rank in terms of like your least favorite shows of all time? Do you even have such a list, Dan? I mean, in my head, and I have the look. I have the shows that I make fun of with some regularity, and they include a lot of very, very easy, obvious suspects that that longtime listeners or readers certainly know about. I will always happily make fun of Hater whenever the yep. opportunity comes up because that is an utter garbage show. I will make fun of Mixology or Work It whenever the opportunity comes up to make fun of those. Um, I've definitely been making fun of, in the past year at least, the the Peacock, um, Carol and Joe Exotic thing, which honestly is significantly better than several of those other shows. And I'll always make fun of uh uh, Beyond Borders, Criminal Minds, because it's like it's a lot. <laughs> I get angry about the shows that are simply bad ideas that are then executed badly, like something like Mixology. It's a garbage show, but who cares? Work It was a stupid idea, but there's, you know, whatever. It was so kind of, offensive in it, so many ways. It was, but it was still you look at it and you go, OK, Paul Lee thought he was making Bosom Buddies for a new millennium. He wasn't, but you still sort of understand. Whereas the idea that a CBS executive heard the pitch for Beyond Borders and thought, yeah, that seems like a really good idea in this particular political moment is is kind of disgraceful to me. But yeah, no, I think the I think the listeners know the the shows that I dislike. I, I don't keep those uh, particularly secret. <laughs> That's fair. I really don't. So continuing with headlines on the casting front, if you thought that Hulu's only murders in the building was somehow lacking for 
star power. They announced this week that Meryl Streep is going to join the cast for season three, which is, I guess, exciting, except God, Meryl Streep's been doing a lot of television lately. I mean, it's just, just not as exciting as it would have been if uh, she hadn't done uh, Big Little Lies. And of course, she has, I think she has an episode of Extrapolations, uh, the, yep, an Apple. the Apple show. So, but like we also every- don't know if she's a series regular or if she's a guest star in one episode or more. Exactly. We are, we, so far as we know, she could have just dropped in for a table read because she was friends with somebody and then somehow got, got wrangled into Selena Gomez's, uh, Instagram Live or whatever it was, uh, TikTok, whatever the kids are doing these days with their phones and the uh, the recording of the videos and whatnot. Yeah, so we don't know what she's going to be doing. They're, they're, that's a show with a lot of frequent guest stars, but sometimes they pop up for like one episode and you're like, okay, are we going to get more Sting? Apparently not. Are we going to get more Amy Schumer? Apparently not. So maybe Meryl Streep will be one of those kind of guest stars, or maybe she'll actually have a, a substantive role. Either way, though, sure, why not? Either way, Meryl Streep. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. Period. That's enough. (laughs) Uh, We talked all about a bunch of renewals and, well, we got some cancellation news here. Gossip Girl has been axed after two seasons on HBO Max. Uh, Showrunner Josh Safran, sources say, went into the finale in December in the midst of the HBO Max cancellations and content removals and tweaked the episode so it would feel more like a proper ending. And he did say in a statement that the show will be shopped. So good luck to Warner Brothers and finding a new home for Gossip Girl. Elsewhere, Netflix has canceled Darren Star Comedy Uncoupled, starring Neil Patrick Harris after one season. And Mayans will end its ride at FX with its previously announced fifth season. FX is sort of going about to go through a transitional point on shows that I don't necessarily watch. Last year was kind of an FX transitional point on shows that I do watch and love. And we said goodbye to better things. We said goodbye to Atlanta. And it looks as if FX is about to say goodbye to Snowfall, a show that, as I keep saying, I I really do hear it's good. And at some point, I will probably have to start it over again because I don't remember the one season I watched at all and attempt to watch it, but probably not anytime soon. And Mayans MC is a show that, you know, can live on without me. I'm I'm a little surprised by the Gossip Girl cancellation. Are you are you surprised or given the state of things at HBO Max does nothing really surprise you there? From what I hear, it was a ratings thing, not that those ratings are public information, but I'm I hear that the second season didn't cut through in the same way that the first did and they yeah, I remember HBO Max issued some generic statement you know, early after, I think it was July 2021 after the show launched and they said it was its its best, you know, scripted drama launch in, in history. And at that point, history was like, what, a year? Maybe? I mean, yeah, Gossip Girl Returns. Of course, a lot of people who were fans of that original show were going to check it out and probably checked it out and said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks, and then didn't come back for season two. So it's really not surprising when you have a legacy title that can't find a new audience, because if you kind of keep kicking that thing around, you're just damaging the entire brand. But if you cut bait after, let's say, two seasons here, maybe the original brand still has its value. So who knows? On the development front, Stephen Colbert is adapting The Chronicles of Amber, uh, the book that by Roger Zeleny, uh, that apparently is one of George R. R. Martin's favorites. Stop reading, George! Write the books! Write the books! Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Finish the books! Finish them! And so, yes, it will be adapted as a drama series, uh, and, and, yeah. It- and Robert Kirkman's attached to do it. He created this other show that you might have heard of called The Walking Dead. So I that's have a kind of, of that show. An unusual pairing there. Anyway, a search for a writer is already underway, as is a platform from the project from CBS Studios, where Colbert has, of course, an overall deal. And speaking of development, pilot season is here. Do you guys remember pilot season? It happens kind of in January every year, and the broadcast networks used to order north of 100 pilot comedies and dramas every season and try and find the next big broadcast hit. Well, the hundreds of pilots and those orders have really what shrunken to maybe a third of that if you're lucky but you've had some early pickups this january so among the er early orders we've seen a murder mystery at land at nbc starring retta that reunites her with good girls creator jenna bands and abc is mounting a legal comedy called public defenders sure what could go wrong 
Indeed. I feel like we might have mentioned some of these broadcast renewals in last week's podcast, but who even remembers? Uh, Abbott Elementary and Ghosts have both been picked up for third seasons on ABC and CBS, and The CW has renewed All-American, which is its first Next Star pickup. And that's not all that The CW is doing. What is the other news from The CW? This perplexes the hell out of me. Yeah, it shouldn't perplex the hell out of you, Dan, because it really just speaks to what the CW's future is going to look like under Next Star. And the news this week, as uh, our colleague Alex Weprin and I reported on Tuesday, a couple of days before the CW officially confirmed it, but I don't know, even know how to pronounce this. Is it L-I-V? It is, the, it is Live. It's Live. So they've picked up the Live Golf Tour, which is the Saudi-backed golf tour. So this is a multiple-year deal with the Saudis for this golf tour that features a lot of big-name golfers, if you're into that sort of thing. I've picked up golf, but I can't watch it on TV. That shit is boring to watch. Um, but... Sources say the deal won't cost the CW a cent, which is insane to me. And what's interesting here is this is obviously the CW and Nexstar's effort to turn the network into a broader platform for more adult viewers. So think of what the CW was under Mark Pedowitz, right? Lots of scripted originals from Warners and CBS Studios. Then it had a ton of diversity. They really celebrated, you know, the diversity and, and how the network really looked different than a lot of the other broadcasters. And what's interesting to me is the PGA Tour, which has deals with a lot of different broadcasters, including CBS, which, of course, still retains a 12.5% stake in the CW. The PGA has a deal with CBS to never carry live golf. So here is a network that, yes, CBS no longer controls half of it, but they still retain 12.5% of it, and they're carrying the Saudi-backed golf tour that CBS originally said that they were not going to do. And this is pretty much the whitest of white thing that you can pick up here. So it's also something that obviously, you know, we talk so much about the importance of live sports in 2023. And that's your best way to guarantee a live tune in, right? It's no longer award shows because we saw the ratings for the Golden Globes. We saw the ratings for the Critics' Choice, which also aired on the, C on the CW. And sports remains the best way to get live eyeballs to your network or to your platform. It's why Amazon invested in Thursday night football. It's why everyone else is trying to get any kind of sports on their air. And the CW now is no exception. So you've got live sports coming to the CW, but of course it's a golf league that's backed by the Saudis. So we'll be interesting to see if any of the affiliates balk at this. It is a, I still find this strange. I, I mean, the, the isn't costing the CW a cent part doesn't actually perplex me because the whole conversation about the live tour, well, not the whole conversation, the conversation has been rather varied and rather acrimonious. There's been a lot of fighting between the two different tours and a lot of talk about the different golfers who were jumping ship from the PGA and all of that. There have been harsh words between Rory McIlroy, who sort of has been the PGA's centerpiece. I guess he's also technically the number one golfer in the world. Uh, and and Greg Norman, who put himself out there as the public face or commissioner or whatever of the Live Tour, and there have been lots of name-calling back and forth. And, and all along, the general consensus has been that whatever the Saudi money was that was driving this, there was absolutely no way that the Live Tour was ever going to have a chance of succeeding without a television deal. And they were in the process of trying to basically pay people to let them put these tournaments on television. And so that's kind of where this is. It, you know, if you look at the roster of players who they have on the live tour, it's a very, very solid roster of, of golfers. Um, but it's a solid roster of golfers who, since they moved over to the live tour, have kind of dropped off into a black hole. Because again, representationally, if you aren't on television, do you even exist? And right. It's, yeah. it's like a show landing on Peacock. <laughs> Not or, to make fun of Peacock, but like who watches Peacock? I would say it's also like a show landing on the CW. So, uh, <laughs> right. But, but right. yes. But I mean, look, in, in terms of what Nexstar wants to do here, their, their goal is to make the CW profitable, something that the network has never been in its history. Of course, we've talked about how it was not created to be profitable for 
pretty much since the start of this podcast, almost 200 episodes ago. But from a Nexstar point of view, here's something, this is like a golden goose, right? You want, taking the Saudi equation of it out of this, you want live sports to bring in eyeballs. You've got live sports with golf, but, and, and it's not costing you a thing. So if you're Nexstar, you're like, where do I sign? And it's a multiple year deal. It definitely doesn't hurt them and definitely, the you know, the the programming they would do of this would be in times where they wouldn't have regular programming anyway. So it's not like this is going to interrupt Wednesday night primetime or something. It's just the, the, the simple truth of it is that golf ratings are very, very fickle. For a long time, golf ratings were fickle, entirely dependent on Tiger Woods' presence in any particular tournament. You know, if you had... Tiger Woods playing over the weekend, you could guarantee that the numbers were going to be very, very large. If you didn't, they were very much dependent on, in some cases, where or what the tournament was, basically the four Grand Slams and nothing else. So even if the Live Tour has a lot of names that actual golf fans respect and in some cases really love, they're participating in events that have no pedigree, no history, and no particular hierarchy that would allow anyone to be like, ooh, I've got to tune in for this Live Tour event, because it's just not like they're playing for, for the Claret Jug. It's not like they're playing amongst the Azaleas at Augusta National, which is a tradition unlike any other. Nothing that the Live Tour has is a tradition like anything. And so how are you going to convince people who aren't just, you know, who aren't golf junkies, basically? So it's addicts. the USFL of golf. It's the USFL of golf uh, and probably in some degrees, yeah, because similar similar discussion of uh, monopolistic practices and lawsuits, similar situation where a bunch of talented people were brought over for ridiculous above market rate uh, amounts of money. So yeah, I would I would say fairly much like that. Um and we'll we'll see. It's it's a very weird pairing of of things and we'll see. Yeah. To summarize, this is basically what you're going to expect from the from the new CW. And and in doing some of my reporting around this and and uh, the Greg Berlanti deal, which we're going to talk about in, in, in a second here, even though it's a little old, um, sources say the CW is only going to have three scripted U.S. originals. So one of them we know is going to be All-American. Could be more, could be less. I don't think it'll be less, but I would anticipate that the overall number of shows to be three, and I'm not counting unscripted shows, and I'm not counting like low cost acquisitions. So I'm talking about the, the the CBS studios and the Warner Brothers TV produced scripted originals that you have come to know and most of you love on the CW. So wait and see what else is it will survive. Vaguely bonkers. Yeah, but I did want to, you know, I, I obviously it's been about a month since we've had a podcast, a normal podcast with you and I, Dan. And one of the big stories that uh, there's two two stories that I wanted to talk about that that I missed. But one of them is Greg Berlanti signing a new. This is not a renewal, but it's a brand new overall deal with Warner Brothers Television, and that's a huge new. It, it's huge news in the overall space, and it's great news for for Warners, but what's interesting about it to me is it's no longer based, this is a, a deal that was put together by CAA, which is Berlanti's new agency. He left, I think, uh, Warner, uh, sorry, he left WME after I think it was more than a, a dozen years where he was based and WME did the last deal and that last overall deal had bonuses for the volume of shows that he delivered because he was making shows for the CW and the CW's business model well, that doesn't exist anymore. So his new overall deal, packaged and, and built by CAA, is more in, in the traditional studio sense where he's going to operate like a mini studio. So the the more, it's not a question of the volume, but it's a question of the show's performance. And of course, how you judge a show's performance on streaming in 2023 is a big, giant question mark. But there are, the way that this deal is structured, it, it will reward him in step with how the studio gets financially compensated for its content. So if, you know, hypothetically he delivers a show for HBO Max and it runs for seven seasons, that's going to be a profitable deal for him. Whereas if he delivers a show and it only runs for one season, it's not, obviously. So very much in line with the traditional sense. And it's a, a big win for David Zosloff, who 
picked up the phone and called Berlanti as one of his first pieces of business to get him to re-up over there. And the other piece of it that that's interesting is it's not expected to include DC content. So that's lots of changes when you're, for the guy who created the Arrowverse at the CW and helped usher in the comic book wave on on broadcast television. Interesting stuff indeed. Yeah, and the other piece that that uh, we got some mail on this. Um, obviously, we've kind of loved to poke fun at at Snowpiercer. You talked about some of the shows that that you know your least favorite shows, and for me, the shows that I love to make fun of. It's basic. It's based purely on the the business side of things. Not that I, I think I've seen three or four episodes of Snowpiercer, um, but. The news is that the Snowpiercer's previous announced fourth and final season, which has already completed production, is not going to air on TNT. It's the latest part of the the write-offs as at Warner Brothers Discovery. All obviously looking for cost savings. That's obviously it's not why Gossip Girl was canceled, but Snowpiercer is being shopped with its first three seasons plus the unaired fourth and final season, and they want to turn turn this into a franchise with prequels and spinoffs and everything else. But what's interesting about this to me is not that the show got pulled, but when you look back or when I look back at the history of this poor show and it's like, yeah, I understand. I, I poke fun at it a lot. I think I just did that in a, in a recent piece that I that I wrote for, for THR last week or two weeks ago before I tested positive. But um, this show had what two different showrunners. Two different directors. Remember when T when TBS said, "Oh, it's going to air on TNT." Said, "Oh, it's going to air on TBS." And they're like, two or two weeks later, two months, however long it was later, they're like, "Oh, just kidding, it'll air on T on TNT." You know, it, it's gone through the ringer. It had such a years long development front. The showrunner got kicked off. The director quit because the new showrunner didn't get it. Then it was moving around the di different networks, and then it finally airs after like an eight year long crazy development process. And now this poor show doesn't even get a, get an opportunity to finish its, its story on TNT. I mean, it'll probably land somewhere at some point because they've already paid for it. So it, they're just looking for a distributor. It's a low-cost gamble. I mean, I wouldn't put it past the CW for, to pick that up. It would actually be probably be too expensive to air on the CW. But my whole point is I'm going to pour one out for Snowpiercer because this is batshit crazy to me. This poor show, these poor cast members, these poor people who put everything they have into this show for so long to have weathered the ups and downs of this insane business for as long as they have for it to end this way. Damn. Yeah. And we, and we do keep talking over and over again about the state of scripted at quote unquote, the T nets or whatever we want to call them. Um, and it just remains another, another peculiar, mysterious thing. They of course, it was a year ago or whatever that they gave multiple premiere dates to the Nassim Petrod show Chad before deciding whatever they decided. I don't even remember where the where things ended with that one. Uh, yeah, it it landed at Roku, <laughs> which sounds which sounds <laughs> right and likely. And and they're kind of doing this again. Like if you look at your January premiere schedule at the start of the month. Uh, there was supposed to be a new season of Miracle Workers that was supposed to premiere on TBS. It's been pushed back to question mark, question mark, question mark. They had on TNT, they had an international acquisition, uh, the Lazarus Project, which was, you know, it was international and it had already premiered in, on British TV to, to fairly positive reviews. That's called a low cost acquisition. Exactly. But even for whatever its low cost acquisition was, it was supposed to premiere on the 23rd and then it got pulled off the schedule again to question mark, question mark, question mark. So yeah, we have just heads, head scratching continues when it comes to the T-Nets. Yeah, I mean, the future for those is going to be sports, which, again, we've just talked about that and its importance for pretty much everyone right now to have some kind of live programming like that. And repeats of syndicated content like Big Bang Theory and Friends, low-cost, unscripted shows. I mean, and we've been saying that for a long time. Remember when we had, you know, we used to, we, God, I must have made five or ten requests to get Brett White's the former GM of TNT and TBS on the podcast because we didn't understand. I was hearing all of these different things from from sources saying this is the future doesn't include live action scripted originals. And they kept greenlighting them and then putting announcing more development and more development and doubling down on this. And then, of course, 
none of it winds up airing. Brett White's is gone. Kathleen Finch is gone. I mean, th these networks are going to be a shell of themselves, of what they were. Remember when, like, Rizzoli and Isles was, like, the biggest show on cable? I mean, oh, to go back to those days. I mean, I don't want to go back to those days because I didn't watch any of those shows. But those were big ratings winners. And then Kevin Riley came in and said, you know what? We're going to make, you know, better stuff. We're going to do high quality content and, we're, and let's put Snowpiercer in development. And, you know, he brought Chad with him, you know, when he had previously developed that show when he was at Fox. So it's 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 crazy to me that that these networks no longer have any scripted content, scripted originals. I mean, I'm not talking about the syndicated repeats of Big Bang, which probably still outdraws most of the broadcast stuff these days. Oh, for sure. But anyway. <laughs> This is a really long headlines, but uh, it felt really nice to get back in the saddle. So thank you for, for affording me a quick little refresher on, on two stories that I did want to touch on. Of course. Number two. Up next, Dan, you went to TCA. Tell me about it. I missed the whole damn thing. You did. Phew. There were there were definitely days that uh, that it would have been nice to have had you there. And there were definitely lots and lots and lots of people who asked after you and your health and expressed concern and put positive vibes out in the ether for you. And that, of course, includes our wonderful fill in guest hosts, uh, Chris Hahn and Kayla, uh, but other people as well. But yes, the the Television Critics Association press tour, as we talked about Last week, it made its triumphant in-person return. Uh, that would have been as of two Mondays ago now. And Wednesday marked the end of the press tour. We had a jam-packed day with, I think, 12 panels from Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, rather... Jesus. Yeah, it was a lot of panels. Uh, awful lot of panels. And... And no panels for a lot of the things that I honestly enjoy the most, but they've got a lot of stuff coming up, and that was what they chose to uh, concentrate on. Though they did, they did have a a huge announcement that Ted Lasso will be coming back, quote unquote, this spring. So that was that yeah, was with no news about if season three is going to be a final season. Indeed, uh, and certainly Bill Lawrence, who is a multiple guest of this podcast, a friend of the five, as it were, he he talked evasively about any news relating to the show and. Uh, Ultimately, what they did was they put out a, a picture and they said, come in this spring. So I would guess that probably means as late as humanly possible within this Emmy cycle, in all likelihood. Though, since it's a weekly airing show, that could mean, say, April. That ought to get it all done by the end of May. Uh, so, yeah, that was so there was no that there was no second season of Pachinko panel. Uh, but, you know, they still they still brought out a lot of. A lot of the big guns, they brought out all of the stars of the new season of The After Party. They brought out such esteemed personages as uh, Jennifer Garner. Um, they had the panel for shrinking, which did not include Harrison Ford. So in um, sheer itchy and scratchy and poochy style, Harrison Ford had to be mentioned in nearly every uh, question, which is entirely reasonable. They brought back... Some of the stars of Schmigadoon, basically whoever was available, which turned out to be Keegan-Michael Key and Dove Cameron. Uh, and we got clips from the new season of Schmigadoon, which is not one of my favorite shows, but is definitely some people's favorite show or somewhere in that range. Um, yeah, no, they, they, they brought out a lot of stuff. They did not bring out an executive session, but that... Yeah. <laughs> was there really only one executive session during the entire press tour? Two. No one ever Two. counts PBS. Who? Paula Kirk. Oh, Paula, come on. Don't roll your eyes at Paula Kirker. She is she is longstanding and happily stands up there at a podium and answers questions about anything, regardless of whether. Yes, Dan, that's a given. But I'm talking about Landgraf. We know he. We got the peak TV update. Five hundred and ninety nine. Jeez. I still but say. Also, like. I still say someone needed to put out one more show on New yeah. Year's Eve just to get us to an even six hundred. But oh well. Right. I mean, but like the entire point. For me, the value of, of TCA, especially an in-person one, is access to executives because those narratives are things that we use to report and shape our coverage for a year or until we see them again six months later in the summer. But, you know, look, I, I get it. It's expensive to go to press tour, not just for, for reporters, but for these networks and streamers as well. You got to stop production. You got to put up hair and makeup and, and do all of that stuff. And I mean, it's not cheap. 
But execs, come on, man. Apple has never even put their execs out for anything. Put people out. Put your executives out there. Freeform, Tara Duncan, put her out there, man. These are good executives who are doing smart things with their with their platforms. And no one is being able, and no one's really able to write about it because we're all sitting in a, in a room asking about spoilers for season two of Schmigadoon with half the cast present. You know, I, I get it, you know, and I, I'm sitting in a, in a, a chair of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, You're sitting I'm on a sitting chair in, of, a chair I'm of lies. Sitting, I am sitting in a very privileged oh, chair to work for chair. a big outlet like the Hollywood Reporter where we do have access if we wanted to put in a request to speak with pretty much whomever. It's very rare that we get, we get turned down. I mean, with the exception of our podcast, Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy, but for the most part, if we put in an interview request, we'll get them. But for a lot of these other outlets, you're sitting in a room with what, I don't know how many outlets were there, 200 different people? Was that room, would you say the room had 200 people in it? I would say so, 150 yes. people in it? I don't know, however many outlets that is. But that's a great opportunity that these networks and streaming services are missing to be able to put out an executive and say, this is our focus. Hey, guess what? Broadcast networks participated, or at least some of them did. It's pilot season. Here's our view about pilot season 2023. Here's what we want to do. Look, we're super pumped about Abbott Elementary. Yes. You know, how is that going to impa impact our development? We're looking for more upbeat. Like, I can write some of these speeches in my sleep and open yourselves up to these questions. I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous to have the PBS exec every single tour and uh, you know, I applaud her for doing that, but Landgraf is, can't be the only one. He shouldn't be the only one. And CBS, you want to take your presentation virtual and, and do it outside of, of TCA? I get that. There's a cost savings there. You have a brand new entertainment president who hasn't done any interviews yet. What better opportunity to have her meet the press than literally sitting down in a room filled with 200 outlets? I think there's always the the concern that look these people who are in the top jobs all have egos and they all don't like their egos to be bruised and some of them come away from an encounter with the press feeling as if the questions were too harsh or harped on some things or whatever and but I'm sorry my, do they not understand how journalism works also Dan as a former TCA president you cannot take this side I refuse no, to I'm allow not, you to God, take this God, side not, to I'm, make excuses for them to not put out their executive No I'm, I'm just telling you what the excuses are no I think it's I think it's wrong because I think regardless if you feel 2 seconds of bruising and you experience a brief wave of stories that make fun of you for whatever that's, then do better. But all, but I'm, and I'm then not do even, better. Then you know what? Come out and sit there like Landgraf and sit and say, you know what? I've been wrong about my peak TV productions. Here's a guy who says he's actually been wrong twice, and we still refer to him as the mayor of television, and we still respect him more because he comes out and he says he was wrong. And these, and let's come on, let's let's be completely serious here too. And this is just probably two weeks of of me being stuck at home ranting here, but. You want us in the room. You want us to write about these shows. TCA is turned into exclusively a marketing event. You're marketing your shows. You're hoping that these 200 outlets sitting there are going to write or tweet favorable things about whatever show that you've never heard of and that people will never have heard of because there's 600 shows out there. Sorry, 599. But like, give us a narrative. If you want us to write about the spin, I mean, these execs get get so much media training. Remember when Paul Lee used to come out, out on the stage and refer to everything as sticky? Like, you know, he it was like an art of of how he would like dodge like reporter questions, especially in the in the post panel scrums. You know, he's like you know saying the same canned quotes all the time. If you're gonna be in this position, take the questions, come out. Sit there with a narrative. Come out and say, "Hey, I'm Craig Erwick, and I'm you know, and I'm using him as an example because he's got ABC and Hulu." Take a victory lap. Only Murders in the Building is a big hit. Abbott Elementary, a, also a big hit. You know what? Here we're going to build on these. You know that's a great narrative to build around. 
the ability to set the narrative to me more than anything is why all of these executives should be out there and why to me it is genuine malpractice that they don't especially given how many of these are shareholder companies to me it is genuine malpractice for a lot of these people to not come out there and not set their narrative because that's what they're supposed to do. We're supposed to push back. That's our job. Setting the narrative is what they're supposed to do. They should be there. Part of why Landgraf is so good at doing what he does is that before he starts taking questions, he does a presentation. He does a slideshow. He tells you the things that they want to emphasize. And sometimes the questions are entirely unrelated to the thing he wanted to set the narrative at, but sometimes they follow along with that. There is no excuse if you are so many of the executives for these companies to not come out and give us what the narrative is for the next seven months. You talked about how it's about news stories in the moment, and then you talked about how it shapes coverage. And, and you just can't put a dollar value on the shaping of the coverage part of the equation. The fact that- I mean I'm going to give you an example, Dan. I wrote the Gossip Girl cancellation story, and I'm not going to name names, but I did hear this morning from a publicist connected to the show who complained about my coverage and that in that I put in the context there of what's been happening at HBO Max under Warner Discovery with all the content write-offs. You know, I'm like, the news, the timing of the cancellation comes as HBO Max has gotten rid of XYZ, minks, blah, 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 in an effort to save billions of dollars in cost savings following the merger. And I got pushback on that. Okay, well, if this isn't your narrative anymore, I don't know what your narrative is because Casey didn't do press tour. I mean, he used to. He used to do one-on-ones with pretty much any outlet that requested him. And they used to give us, what, 10, 15 minutes with him and then we would get a great q and A. I, I think I one time I did like, you know, rapid fire questions with him, like twenty questions in in ten minutes, and it he, was a great story. he would always he would always do every but he other has a narrative. tour. He would always but he had do a every, he would always do every other tour. And that was always the thing that the HBO executives did. Now, HBO was not at this press tour because Warner Brothers wasn't at this press tour. and and I understand in a vague sense why they were not because, he didn't want to get hammered with, like, what the fuck are you guys doing yeah. over there? Pardon my French again. I'm trying to curse less. But what are you guys doing over there with all these content write-offs? Why would you drop minks? Why would you renew it and then say you, – you, you, I mean, I re- reported all about that in the fast, uh, the, the fast platform of, of it all. But, like, I get why they're not going to do that. But, like, just – just because you skip this tour, if you come back in the summer, guess what? We're still going to ask you about it. We don't forget big stories like that. No, and the, and the ability to shape the narrative if you're a good, well-run shop is so crucial at press tour. I would point to what uh, Disney and its various entities did at this press tour as just a really, really smart way of figuring out different ways to use press tour. And uh, I would emphasize that they should have had a way to get more executives present. You mentioned Tara Duncan. She was there and did introductions to panels, but she didn't take questions. And uh, to me, I don't understand that because I feel as if Onyx Collective in particular is a thing that is so interesting and so worthy and so worthy to have its narrative told and to have its narrative understood by a room of reporters. And the fact that they and she's didn't. truly doing Great stuff over there at Freeform, too. She's got a nice little track record going. And and the fact that they didn't take that opportunity is a miss. But on the other hand, I can point to all of the other ways that they handled press tour well. They got a lot of the different brands out because, of course, Disney has everything. So they were able to get out, you know, make sure that there were narratives uh, steered around Disney Plus, narratives around Nat Geo, etc., they also were very, very smart about uh, acknowledging that it is a wider company. And so they found ways to acknowledge that the press tour happens in the middle of Oscar voting. So they did a panel with four of the directors of shortlisted um, documentaries. That is not necessarily TV coverage. On the other hand, it is getting people who want Oscar nominations out there. They had a an appearance by James Cameron who didn't take questions, but on the other hand, people tweeted about the presence of James Cameron for 10 minutes. So that was valuable for them. I think that there are so many different ways of using press tour that smart companies 
would be able to take advantage of and that really and truly they need to take advantage of. You look at the struggles that Netflix is having with the curation of its content, just the volume of content and the number of things that are slipping through the cracks and the way that that leads to cancellations. That is what Press Tour is for. You're not going to come out and bring all 500 shows that you're premiering in the year, but you are going to come out and say, here are 10 or 11 shows in the case of Apple TV, but also in the case of what Netflix has done in the past, that we want to make sure are on your radar. And that can be three random international shows that most people won't review. It can be a couple documentaries that maybe people didn't know they were supposed to take interest in. It doesn't need to be your biggest shows. You don't need to do a Stranger Things panel, though. Why would you not do a Farewell to Stranger Things panel? Um, But since we don't know when that's actually coming, maybe they'll be there in July and they should. But it's just so much in the streaming landscape is about curation, and that is part of what our job is, but it's also part of what the streamers' jobs are. And so for Netflix to not come out and do some curation, for Amazon to not come out and do some curation, for, I'm trying to think of who For Jen Salky to not come out and sit there and say, we've greenlit 750 shows since since she's taken over, and I think, what? 650 of them haven't aired yet, and maybe 600 of them haven't even been in production yet, and maybe it's all just press release and nothing actually behind it? I don't know. I mean, I have no idea what the narrative over there is, especially in light of the MGM stuff. It's like, well, all I can see is, okay, well, this show worked, so now they're going to greenlight another one just like it, but then they have all this other sci-fi stuff, and here's... I don't know. That's why I'm I'm so frustrated that to hear and that... You know, look, I feel, would I have rather have been at TCA than having stuck at home with COVID? Absolutely. But am I going to look, as a member, a TCA member, am I going to look forward to going to summer tour, especially in person, and possibly risking COVID exposure again if there aren't any execs? My interest in TCA is directly connected to how many executive sessions there are. And with Landgraf, I would have been there in a heartbeat. But if next tour has no executives, what's the point? It might as well be virtual. Save the money, networks, right? You're canceling everything. You're cutting back on development budgets. You've got layoffs everywhere. Spending your money to to take, you know, 20 cast members or however many people to go to press tour for a day and stopping production and doing whatever and paying that cost. Send an executive. Do an executive session instead. It's cheaper. It's better. Sorry. I think I'm done. I think the best press tour um, arrays are the ones that mix it up. I think, obviously, always just going to praise FX again because FX always just does the right mixture of, okay, we got an executive session because Landgraf comes out every time. Here are a couple of returning shows. Here are a couple of new shows. It's the right mix, um, and they always do it. Absolutely. Anyway, that the FX bo- day is perfect. And they, and they you know, put a little, uh, a little nut mix they right, they don't keep, it keeps you going they they don't was there no nut mix this this time <laughs> you, you stop saying nut mix <laughs> what it was like wasn't that what it was it was like pretzels and stuff in there pretzels are not nuts but it was like pretzels and nuts and anyway food had to be done differently this press tour because of the uh the the covid of it all but anyway so yes in in conclusion i thought it was i thought it was a really productive press tour in general i thought it i thought it really did feel a lot like press tour i thought a lot of people seemed genuinely pleased to be back. And I'm talking about on the side of the the networks and the talent. That was sort of the impression I got, whether or not it's true, who knows. But again, hey, that's another part of spinning a narrative. And yeah, so we will see what July brings around. Knock on wood. Number three. Rather than a showrunner interview, rather than a, another topic, we're just going to go straight through to the critics corner. So among this week's major new launches, you've got the new season of Truth Be Told on Apple, that 90s show on Netflix, and Night Court on NBC, which already premiered, and the ratings. Wow, Dan. Indeed. Uh, Night, Court, Night Court is a hit. Um, anyway, I haven't watched uh, the new season of Truth Be Told, but it had a really good uh, DCA panel. Um, Octavia Spencer and Gabrielle Union were both really, really good on the, on the panel. Um, made, me, made me curious. I wish I had the time, too. Be more curious. Um, and then there are a lot of embargoes. Next week should be a really good Critics Corner. There's a lot of stuff that has its embargo lifting next week. So be able to talk about stuff like shrinking 
on Apple TV Plus, etc. Uh, but yeah, so Night Court has already pre- uh, premiered. And as you say, it premiered big. And it premiered big, presumably, because, well, mostly because NBC has been promoting it relentlessly and reminding people that there is nostalgia for a brand. And they promoted it over and over again during the Golden Globes. They've been promoting it relentlessly during various sporting events with live audiences. So people were trapped in watching commercials for Night Court. And uh, so, like, basically, the the only two shows I'm really going to be able to review this week um, are that 90s show in Night Court, and boy, that suggests something about the current nostalgia of the TV landscape. I think the two shows are similar because I think a lot of people are simply reviewing them or watching them or whatever, fueled entirely by a nostalgic perspective of what the original shows were. I, I you know, a lot of people love Night Court. Of course they do. It was, it I was love the original. Love it. But the thing that people erase from their memories of Night Court is how really inconsistent that show was. This is this is something that was the basis of my review, is that the version of Night Court that you have in your head was probably only the version of the Night Court of Night Court that existed half of the time. I think some of the time the show was really good, some of the time the show was silly but amusing, and some of the time the show was an utter mess. It was a show that went underwent a lot of fairly regular cast changes around uh, Harry Anderson and John Larroquette, and some of those casts had better chemistry than others. But people, for the most part, their memories don't get stuck on the the hundred episodes that weren't very good. They get stuck on the 90-something episodes that were very good. And that's fully reasonable, but it means that when you watch the new show, and maybe it isn't great immediately, and it's not great immediately, it's not great at any point, I've seen six episodes, and you go, oh, it's not as good as Night Court, what you're saying in your mind is it's not as good as the idealized version of Night Court that maybe never existed. Uh, the, the new show is, it's hit and miss, and I think it's hit and miss in somewhat similar ways to the way the original Night Court was. I don't think it reaches any real pinnacle in these episodes. But a lot of what was always so good about the original Night Court was John Larroquette, because John Larroquette is fantastic. And he is really, really good in the new show as well, because John Larroquette does multi-camp comedies as well as anyone. Uh, But a lot of the things you remember, a lot of the people you love the most from the original Night Court were people who weren't on the original version of the show or for or were on for three seasons in the middle and then vanished, etc. And so when you look at the new cast and go, OK, these are largely hit and miss performances, probably some of them won't be there in a year and a half. And maybe the person they bring in will be somebody who you find yourself loving um, and the supporting cast or even the lead cast, because Melissa Rauch is really the star of the show. Um, it's, it's and the not, executive producer. And the executive producer is not, it's not consistent. I think Melissa Rauch is, is funny, but I don't think she's consistently funny. And I don't think they have a consistent sense of what her character is. I think a lot of the supporting characters, they don't have a consistent sense of. Uh, um, Lacreta, who plays uh, Gergs, who's the fill in bailiff. I don't I don't think she's really been given a consistent character. She's been given a lot of punchlines. And so that's that's what it is. Um I mean that's what Bull was, right? No, I would say I think Bull was fairly consistently what he was. So he was sort of he was sort of monosyllabic and uncomfortable and and overly tall. And those were the things that defined him and gave him his voice. And he was another of the consistent points of the show in the sense that he was just there. Um and he was funny. So but anyway, so so I think that if you're disappointed by the first couple episodes, I can tell you that like the third and the fifth episodes are are pretty solid. And then I can tell you that the sixth episode is utterly unbearable. And that means that the seventh episode could be funny still because it's just not consistent. And I don't know that I'm going <laughs> to watch the show regularly. But part of that is because my nostalgic view of Night Court is as a show that was sometimes good and sometimes awful and so therefore unnecessary. If your version of the show is that you loved the show and that you have a desperate craving for that kind of multi-cam 80s, 90s comfort food, it it could work. I see no reason. Um, for whatever it was, Night Court at its peak was in all ways superior to uh, that 70s show at his at its peak. I think that 70s show is a is an above average network sitcom that worked 
because of its cast and it worked because it was already fueled by nostalgia for the 70s. For some reason, that didn't work when it bumped up to the 80s. But now we're trying again with the 90s. Uh, but like, I, I just can't get into the idea that that 70s show was some great show that shouldn't be tampered with or that can't a level that can't be risen to. It, in, like, I am not in any way a hater of that 70s show. I really do think I watched every single episode of it at some point. I, I watched it for years and years. I think it's possible that maybe I missed some of the later seasons, some episodes, but whatever. I didn't see a single one. Oh, it, it, it's an amusing show. It's uh, it, Topher Grace was was a really, really good uh, multi-camp sitcom actor. He was he was really funny on that show. Um Ashton Kutcher, you understand kind of how he became a star. You understand how Mila Kunis became a star. Uh, Laura Prepon was really good. I never for a second liked uh, Wilmer Valderrama or Fez on that show. Not for one second and and still annoys me here. Um, but and and then the adults, uh, Deborah Jo Rupp and Kurtwood Smith are just really good. And so a lot of that is why the show worked. And I think it's much better than a lot of shows that we are getting reboots for that people have more nostalgia for. Like, if you want to say, which is a better show, that 70s show or Full House, like on a on an objective basis, that 70s show is many times better than Full House. And that 90s show is many times better than Fuller House. But it has a lot of the same strangenesses. It it relies really heavily on callbacks to the original show it relies really heavily on the fact that the studio audience will cheer and whoop for any person from the original cast who pops up, however briefly or however many multiple times. Like Tommy Chong, every time he pops up in the new series, the crowd goes nuts. Every time Laura Prepon pops up, the crowd goes nuts. Uh, Don Stark, when he pops up, the crowd goes nuts. Uh, so that's it's. There's a lot of the same stuff, and any time that Red Foreman says anything about putting his foot anywhere near anyone's ass, the crowd goes nuts, because these are things that people like about the show. But th that 90s show isn't going to work or fail entirely on callbacks to the original, and a lot of the time it feels like they don't really understand that. And um, I think that the young cast, unfortunately, is just really not as good or not as consistently good as the original and it there's a lot of kind of generational stuff going on because the main character is is leia foreman who is um the daughter of eric and donna the daughter of topher grace and laura prepon's character and she ends up coming to live with her grandparents under somewhat contrived circumstances that are set up in the first episode and she's played by uh callie haverda and she's pretty good actually she's she's above average she's kind of nervous and unstudied in a way that I liked. But then basically they try to recreate a lot of the characters, some directly. So Ashton Kutcher's character has a son and he's dreamy and he says a lot of the stuff that his father said. And you're supposed to go, ha ha ha, I get that callback. And you do. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the stuff with the kids unfortunately doesn't work. And that means that they have to lean heavily on how good Kurtwood Smith is how good Deborah Jo Rupp is. Uh, Andrea Anders plays the uncouth neighbor. She's kind of funny at times. Uh, and then the stuff with the kids is a lot of rehashing that doesn't always feel like it has any purpose in being said in 1990. Uh, I, I laughed a couple times. There's one episode that is all about how the kids are obsessed with 90210 because it is the 90s and therefore that's appropriate. And that episode I thought was actually pretty funny and has a cameo from at least one 90210 regular who is genuinely funny in the episode. And so uh, that episode is is worth sticking around for if you're kind of on the fence for, for the first few episodes. Uh, but it, you know, it, the, the music, then the needle drops are, are pretty solid. Again, if you have particular 90s nostalgia. But I think that anyone who's going to attempt to be like, oh, God, this is a desecration of of that 70s show, which was some sort of stone cold classic. I don't think that's true at all. And I don't think it's as good as that 70s show at its best. But I can't like look at that 70s show and go, oh, that's the peak season of that 70s show. I can tell you a couple seasons that I know were not good. Um, 
and I actually can't even list them. I just know that towards the end, the show was kind of unspooling a little bit. But for the most part, it was a show that had some good episodes and a lot of dull episodes, and then even more episodes right in the middle that were just Red saying he was going to stick his foot up people's asses, and then everybody sitting in the circle and smoking weed and ha 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 ha. Uh, and I think that the new show is a lot like that. I, I I don't think I liked it all that much, but there were a couple episodes I did like. There were a couple performances I did like. I did watch the whole first season, so you know I made it through that. I'm just not going to I'm just not going to be very tolerant of people who are like, oh, this is some gigantic come down from the original series. It's it's really not. It's uh, it's sort of comparable to to low ebb that 70s show. And so, yeah, lots of lots of uh, nostalgia this week. And it'll be nice to get to next week when there are a couple original television shows that aren't entirely nostalgia driven. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. Feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, spread the word of mouth by writing a little reviewy thing. Apparently, those things really do help. You can come say hi to us on Twitter. I'm at The Fine Print. Leslie is at Snoodit. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, and all that good stuff. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, and if got a couple of good ones. Yeah, we did. We did. I'll always do. You, you guys come through, but uh, we would love to always love to get questions from you guys. And you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Let us know what you want to hear more of. And yeah, that's that's what it is. Hopefully next week we'll be back a little bit more back to normal, but it's good to have you back on the podcast, Leslie. We have all missed you. And until next week. It's good to be back until next week. <laughs>